0: Listening to Descent Magazine's Belabored Podcast, hosted by Sarah Jaffe and Michelle Chen. Hi, Michelle. Hey, Sarah. Welcome to Belabored, episode 247. Today, we bring you an incredibly timely conversation about women in the labor movement with some of the workers behind the highest profile union drives in recent years the Amazon campaign at Bessemer, the Starbucks Drive, and the New York Times Tech Guild. But first, the news. Last week, we talked to you rather extensively about inflation, and pretty much as soon as we finished recording the episode, there was news on the subject, specifically the news that the Federal Reserve was hiking interest rates in order to curb inflation. We wanted to get our guest's take on that, and so I called up J.W. Mason, professor of economics at John Jay College, to ask him once again, what's wrong with this story and what can workers do next? So basically, once we finished recording our interview last time, we immediately got news about the subject of inflation, specifically that the Federal Reserve was hiking interest rates. So tell us what is going on here and why it might be a bad idea.
1: Well, we have this kind of strange thing, and it is it is strange, even though we take it for granted, this idea that the thing you do when inflation is high, when prices are rising more quickly than people would like is the Federal Reserve raises interest rates. And people take this for granted. It's in every introductory textbook. that we don't realize how actually kind of odd it is and, and actually kind of new historically. You know, this is not how, how things have worked for, you know, a lot of history. The idea is that, you know, when the Fed raises the interest rate that it directly controls, which is basically an overnight rate between banks, this is supposed to get passed on to other interest rates in the economy and the prices of assets. And that makes it harder for businesses to invest or it makes it harder for people to borrow money. And that discourages spending. And then, you know, that maybe reduces prices because there's less demand or maybe, you know, and if you ask people the Fed, this is the thing they will say. First and foremost, this is what Jay Powell says. You ask him, how does this work? Well, it makes it harder for people to get jobs because there's less business spending. And that means they can't ask for wages. That are going to be as high as they otherwise might be able to. And that will eventually then get passed on to lower prices. Right. So it's a very roundabout Rube Goldberg kind of way of managing price increases that is arguably not really what the Fed was, was conceived to do for most of its history, not what it was intended to do by the, by the people who created it, and not a particularly reliable or effective way of managing price increases in the economy.
0: Right. So that... All makes a lot of sense, or rather it doesn't make very much sense. but you know the short version of it is that um, raising rates somehow screws workers, which somehow lowers prices, which somehow curbs the problem. And Powell is saying that he's willing to continue raising rates until the problem is solved, which reminds me of you know the beatings will continue until morale improves.
1: Yes, although the, the positive, the one positive thing we can say here is that morale might uh, improve on its own, so to speak. You know, there's, it's certainly possible that inflation will come down on its own for reasons that have nothing to do with the Fed. And that will give the Fed an excuse to stop raising interest rates before it does um, too much damage to, you know, the economy and to the labor market. Uh, because, you know, right now it's, it is a very favorable labor market for workers. It's a very good time. If you want to quit your job and find a better one, there probably hasn't been a better time in our lifetimes to be doing that. And, and that uh, situation has a bit of, I think, inertia to it. So it's possible, again, that something completely outside of the Fed's control, like a fall in global energy prices, will happen and, and sort of give them an excuse to say, OK, we won and, and stop. would be the best case scenario.
0: Right. And you noted last time, um, and I believe we used it as the pull quote from the episode, right, that we should not actually talk about inflation as this broad phenomenon, but actually talk about specific price increases, because it is specific prices. And something like interest rates is a big, broad hammer to a solution that is, you know, possibly could be more surgical if we're dealing with, again, something that's caused by the price of oil increasing because Russia decided to invade Ukraine. That's not solved by interest rates,
1: right? We've got we've got a a situation where we've got global energy prices going up, and now global food prices going up because Russia and Ukraine are major food producers. And our solution is, hey, let's make it more expensive to build houses because you know then you know people who work in construction won't get big pay raises. And I mean, it's it's crazy. It's really kind of crazy. And you know, it's not even again necessarily what the Fed's legally supposed to be doing. Um, But one thing I think we should stress here is. You know, historically, sometimes it is the case that inflation is, is, goes with high wage increases. You know, historically, wages are the biggest cost for businesses. And historically, if you look at periods of rising prices, they generally do see also high, raising, high wage increases. And so the story that, you know, wage increases get passed on to prices and that's part of what drives inflation. It's not a crazy story on its face. Definitely does not describe what's going on now. Uh, Josh Bivens at the Economic Policy Institute had a nice, nice little calculation, which I then, you know, did a version of. And, um, you know, if you look historically, you know, about 60 percent of, of price increases for stuff produced in the United States, because a lot of our price, you know, the stuff people call inflation is about import prices and nothing to do with what's going on in our country. But you know, the price increases for stuff produced in the United States, historically, about 60 percent of that you can account for by higher wages. But that's not true at all. Over the past year, year and a half, you know, the, over the past year, year and a half, it's less than ten percent. You know, all of this is 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 businesses that are raising prices for other reasons. It has nothing to do with with you know you know wages getting getting passed on to consumers.
0: I mean, I'm talking to you from London right now, where inflation, inflation again, we're using that the cost of living, as people over here are saying, which yes. I think is a better way of, of talking about this, um, and prices around food specifically and fuel um, are going up double digits. And friend of the show, James Meadway noted, we have millions of workers exposed to 1970s style inflation without 1970s style unions to protect them. Um, so we are seeing this moment that is very much not driven by worker power in any real way. Um, certainly not that workers are getting like exponentially bigger share of the pie, which is also a terrible metaphor we shouldn't use.
1: Yeah, that's right. I mean, there's a story about the 70s that I think has some truth to it, which is a distributional conflict. You've got strong, relatively strong unions and, and workers who are strong in other structurally for reasons that are not just about, you know, organized unions and they're able to demand rising wages and and one of the tools businesses kind of fight back with is 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 with price increases. Right. That's really really not the dynamic today. Um if anything, you know, wages are sort of trailing after the price increases, they're not driving them.
0: Right. And what is going on with wages? You noted that the wage increases were actually slowing down in an email.
1: Yeah, we we've, we've definitely seen some slowing of wage growth while inflation has um has, well, price increases. you can't avoid the word completely. Uh, <laughs> right. right. Anyway, the cost of living has, so, you know, a few months ago, I, I think you could say that for lower paid workers in the economy, their standard of living was still going to be higher, despite the, the increase in cost of rents and groceries and energy, wages were, was, were outpacing that. Unfortunately, I, I don't think over the past few months that's been true. I think now for, for, for even for the workers who are, who benefited the most from the tight labor market, um, their wages are probably not growing as fast as their cost of living. Now, that doesn't mean that they're not benefiting from the tight labor market, because it gives you a lot of options, you know, to quit quit a bad job and find a better one that gives you better hours, that gives you more autonomy, that gives you, you know, a little, a little more respect from your boss, and it gives you, you know, job security, because if you lose a job in this market, you can probably find another one pretty easily. So... We shouldn't say just because wages are not keeping pace with the cost of living, people are not benefiting from a tight labor market, but it is it is a bit of a change from from where we were a few months ago.
0: Yeah. And of course, there are, there are plenty of reasons that people switch jobs that aren't just about getting higher wages. And we saw that specifically, you know, a lot of the workers that I've talked to over the course of the pandemic switched jobs for something that was just a little bit less likely to kill them. Um, so that's another thing.
1: That's that's absolutely right. Yeah, I think I think you know you've got this attitude, you know, and people like Larry Summers, you know, this crazy idea. Oh well, and 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 the guy at the Bank of England, I can't remember his name, who said the same thing. Oh, it's in the interest of workers to get slower wage increases because you know if if, if wages grow more slowly, then prices will come down, and somehow, I mean, it doesn't it doesn't make any sense on its own terms. But even if some in some crazy way, that was true. as you say, there are a lot of things that matter in terms of your your work situation besides just you know what your what your paycheck buys, like is your job going to kill you?
0: Well, that reminds me of the argument that people, including like Jason Furman, I think, have made the argument that like Walmart is good for working people, even though it pays poverty wages and has had a downward um, influence on wages and union conditions in the sector because it also gives them low prices.
1: Yeah, and I mean in some sense that's true. You know, if you it's a weird thing. If you look for institutions in our society that really care about poor people, that really, really think about what do what do low income people want and need and how do we make them comfortable. You know, you've got your Walmarts, you've got your payday lenders. And, you know, I mean there's there's a certain truth to that. But it also <laughs> is the case that these are these are terrible uh places to work and terrible institutions that we would we would rather not have exist in a, in a better society.
0: Yeah, and there's been organizing going on right now around Dollar General, among other dollar stores, um, there's worker action going on at the shareholder meeting next week. So yes, these are not exactly um, great, wonderful, worker-friendly institutions because they're for profit. Going forward, I guess, what should people and what should people particularly um, in their unions or when they're going into the workplace be thinking about in terms of you know the policy direction that is being signaled right now and what can be done to perhaps demand a different policy direction from this administration?
1: Well, I think in terms of public debates, we need to push back very hard against the idea that high wages are a problem, that labor shortages are a problem. We need to really, really reject the idea that high wages are are part of the reason that inflation is so high. And if anybody, you know, says, oh, well, you know, we'd like to give you a raise, but it would be irresponsible, you know, because of the inflation. I I don't think employers think that way, but certainly politicians and people in the media talk that way. and, And we need to just, you know, laugh at that and say, no, that's not what's driving inflation at all. So I think I think that's point 1. I think point 2, you know, we also shouldn't panic. This is still a very strong labor market for anybody whether individually you're you're trying to quit your job and, and find a better one or collectively you're trying to make your your position better. You know, it is still a very if anything that that side of the story has gotten gotten more positive uh, over the past uh past few months. So I think I think that's that's something we should not lose sight of at this moment. And I think, you know, I think there's reason to hope. You know, reason to hope, as I say, that inflation may come down on its own for reasons that have nothing to do with anything that the Fed is doing, and um, uh, and then 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 we may actually see an extended period, or or we may not. We may see, you know, if the Fed is is aggressive enough, and they trigger a financial crisis, and uh, eventually, you know, you can have a, a deep downturn, a recession, and unemployment rise. Those are things that could happen, but I, I don't think we should assume that those things are going to happen. I think I think we should we should we should have be be planning for the possibility and and acting on the basis that this is going to be a a favorable situation for workers for perhaps a while to come, um, despite the the Fed's best efforts.
0: (laughs) And in closing, in the email you noted, uh, we should react to someone saying, of course, the Fed needs to raise interest rates when inflation is high, the same way we would react to someone saying, of course, Amazon knows best if its workers need a union.
1: That's right. This, this myth of the Fed is just this benevolent, you know, people looking out for the interests of all of us. They're just technicians doing what's bad. We need to just we need to be done with that. You know, <laughs> this, this is there's no sense in which what they're doing is a rational, sensible response to inflation. And we need to just get that out of our system once and for all.
0: That was Friend of the Show JW Mason. If you have not already, we really recommend you check out last week's full episode on the subject of price increases. And if you like these little economic explainers for workers and labor, let us know at belabored at and you can send us more questions that we may try to answer. Now that politicians
2: and employers are pressuring us to return to work and try to resume so-called normal life, childcare is going to be in high demand. But childcare providers are still reeling from the pandemic, and they continue to struggle with the devastating impacts of the lockdowns, the ongoing public health risks, and of course, all the problems with our childcare system that long predated the pandemic. Childcare workers are some of the lowest paid educators in the country, and their work is deeply undervalued, despite their vital role in children's early development and their role in helping working parents stay in the workforce. Meanwhile, the cost of care for parents is going through the roof, sometimes costing even more than state college tuition. The federal government could do a lot to change the situation by expanding subsidy programs for families and boosting the wages of child care providers who work in child care centers or in smaller-scale family child care homes. But proposals to overhaul the federal subsidy system for child care have stalled. On May 9th, child care organizers staged a rare labor action. For a day without child care... A day of action that took place in 24 states and was sponsored by a coalition of community based nonprofits, childcare providers shut their doors and highlighted their collective demands for living wages, an equitable childcare system built on racial justice, and affordable childcare for all families. I spoke with Chanel Hunter, who runs Family Circle Academy in Philadelphia, about why they decided to take this dramatic step of closing for a day.
3: So, my name is Chanel Hunter, and I own and operate Family Circle Academy in Philadelphia, Pennsylvania. And so I'm a fourth generational child care provider and I decided to take part in this action because as a provider and a parent and a black and brown woman, I am just tired of being used and abused as a child care provider. We don't have livable wages, right? And then as a parent relating to my families, we have to ensure that they have child care. And so when they don't have child care, I can't come to work. So it's a team and parent-led action. And so when I brought this to my parents and they said that they were all for it, I said that we had to become a part of A Day Without Child Care.
2: Why was it important that you actually engage in a work stoppage for this one day? What's the message you're trying to send by basically withholding your labor?
3: Um, so the message that myself and other providers in Philadelphia wanted to send is that Without childcare, you can't go to work because we're the workforce behind the workforce. And understanding that I don't want my labor to be in vain. You know, I love what I do. I love working with children and families. But I can't do that if I don't have a livable way to sustain my own family.
2: What are the major reform proposals that people are looking at right now to bring the country maybe closer to something like a universal childcare system? And do you think that's enough?
3: I know with our demands, we were demanding um, livable wages for child care providers and workers. And then um, in addition to that, equitable child care system that's built on racial justice so that when the decision making is happening, that we have representation at that decision making table and so that our voices are being heard so that when the um, process comes down the pipeline, we're actually the ones that's going to benefit from it. And then lastly, just making sure that affordable um, childcare for everybody. So I think that speaks to the universal childcare proposal.
2: Currently, I think there's a proposal to make childcare cost no more than about 7% of a typical family's income. There are also provisions for raising childcare wages, but what are some of the guarantees that you would like to see?
3: I think one of the things I would like to see, um, like as a guarantee is to make sure when we talk about livable wages, I would like to have a thrivable wage. You know, I'm a highly um, educated child care provider. I have three master degrees. And so I want to ensure that I'm being paid my worth. You know, the things that we provide in our child care center are equivalent to the things that's happening in the public school system. And I want to be able to ensure that the workers that I'm paying to come and do this job are not still able to get welfare benefits. And right now that's current, What's happening in the industry? My hope is that we get some guarantees so that parents can send their children to childcare so that I can actually come to work and provide care for the families that I love to serve and to make sure that my employees actually have a wage that so they can sustain themselves and their families on.
2: Can you talk a little bit about what you've experienced over the last 2 years um with the pandemic? I know a lot of childcare providers have shut down and others ended up, you know, working many many extra hours just trying to comply with all the regulations and standards and everything. Uh what was it like where you work?
3: Um, I would definitely say that the pandemic has been devastating to our industry as a whole. Me specifically, I had to really um, think about the staff that I serve. I have staff that are half um, of my staff are over the age of 50 with, um, you know, some have underlying health issues. And then the other half are young mothers parenting young children. And so the real concern was around safety. And then we talked to our families and everybody was just terrified because we did not know what COVID was and we wanted to ensure the safety of everybody. So when we were able to open back up, we did a delayed opening, um, a soft opening. And when we did, we only provided short hours to our families. And we just realized that Life is more valuable than making money. And so we decided to wait until we really understood what COVID was. But it's devastated my business. You know, pre-COVID, we had over 65 kids, 12 staff, and we're down to three staff, including myself and maybe about 10 to 12 children on an average, you know, like daily basis. And, you know, we're rebuilding.
2: Yeah. And also, I mean, uh, really young kids still can't get vaccinated, right? So this is an ongoing risk that you're having to deal with.
3: Absolutely. You know, um, prior to COVID, we served all age groups from birth all the way up to school age children, um, sixth grade. And currently we have two classrooms closed down because we can't offer care in those classrooms because children at that age can't get vaccinated. You know, they can't wear masks. So what can we do to, you know, sustain ourselves and those families. I don't know because families need care now. They don't want to be put on a waiting list.
2: One of the other issues that often comes up when uh, we're talking about child care is what home-based care providers are going through. And they've had maybe a little bit of a different experience during the pandemic because their workplace is also their home. Is the campaign that that you're carrying out right now also uh, trying to highlight what uh, home child care providers are going through?
3: Oh, absolutely. I would say my journey and my family's journey started from family child care. So I will always pay homage to family child care providers because, like you said, they're doing it in their home. But I do not think that um, their plight is any different from a child care provider functioning in a commercial space. I think the difference is that they're in their home and, you know, you want to make sure that you're extremely safe in a commercial space. So think about the extremes that you would have to go to, not just to be at work, but to make sure that your home is safe and secure where your family has to live. So I think that this is a plight that affects family child care, group child care, and center child care. I don't think that it's specific to one group.
2: Is there anything else that you want people to know? I mean, I feel like governments across the country are really eager to open back up and get people back to work. And childcare is going to be a major part of the so-called recovery that we're a part of. But um, what would you like people to keep in mind, um, as some people are obviously uh, not, not past the pandemic yet?
3: I would like people to keep in mind that um, outside of being a child care provider, I'm just a regular person, just like them. I'm a mother, I'm a wife. And I want to know that when I go to work that my I'm valued as an employee and that I'm also valued as a, a human being. And I want people to understand that the child care industry is holding the economy up and that we just want to be recognized for that. We just want to make sure that we're able to sustain our families the same way we provide service for other families.
2: That was Chanel Hunter, who
0: runs Family Circle Academy in Philadelphia. The other topic that's been on everyone's mind lately has been abortion rights. As Michelle noted in last week's episode, the leak of the draft opinion from the Supreme Court overturning Roe v.ersus Wade has brought the politics of accessing and providing abortions to the fore. It was particularly strange for me, I must say, as I was in Ireland when the leak came out, a country that voted just in 2018 to legalize abortion through a nationwide referendum, a referendum that I was in Ireland, in fact, to cover. While polls indicate in the U.S. that a nationwide referendum, were we to have such a thing, would have similar results, a good-sized majority voting for safe and legal abortion, the politics of the issue have not been played out in public this way, and that has been to the benefit of those who want to criminalize abortion. Now that the entire country is looking at them, the criminalizers have had to soft pedal their plans a little bit. But draft bills, even if they were killed in places like my home state of Louisiana, that would categorize a fetus as a person, abortion as murder, and make both doctors and pregnant people criminally liable, show their hand. As Michelle noted, abortion clinics are also workplaces, and many clinic workers are union members. In my book, I featured the story of the Planned Parenthood union drive in Colorado where workers fought to unionize to protect themselves in the kind of job that not only requires deep emotional labor at the best of times, but also regularly results in death threats and assaults. But it's not just those workers who make abortion access a worker's issue. As Asha Banerjee at the Economic Policy Institute writes, abortion is a so-called bread and butter issue. She notes, quote, women's economic lives, livelihoods, and mobility are at the heart of the reasoning to overrule Roe. In the draft majority opinion, Justice Alito dismissed the argument in Casey that women had organized their lives, relationships, and careers with the availability of abortion services, writing that form of reliance depends on an empirical question that is hard for anyone, and in particular for a court, to assess, namely the effect of the abortion right on society and in particular on the lives of women. Do you like my Justice Alito voice? I have no idea what he actually sounds like, but that's what I assume he sounds like. Going on with the quote, in fact, this empirical question has been definitively assessed and answered. A rich and rigorous social science literature has examined both the detrimental effect of a denied abortion on women's lives, as well as the individual and societal economic benefits of abortion legalization, as detailed in the thorough amicus brief filed in Dobbs on behalf of over 100 economists. Some of the economic consequences of being denied an abortion include a higher chance of being in poverty even four years after, a lower likelihood of being employed full-time, and an increase in unpaid debts and financial distress lasting years. Laws that restrict abortion providers, so-called trap laws, targeted regulation of abortion providers, have led to women in those states being less likely to move into higher-paying occupations, end quote. And those states, of course, overlap very nicely with the states that crack down on unions, so-called right-to-work states, and all of our favorite things. The New York Times has a piece that looks at the effects on women of the first-row generation who were able to move into the workplace because they did not have to carry an unwanted pregnancy. And while I'm skeptical often of the framework that posits jobs uncritically as liberation for women, there is no doubt that access to decent work has freed women from dependence on men also that not only women get abortions. It's also worth pointing out that the draft opinion from Belaybird's least favorite justice, Samuel Alito, also the author of Harris versus Quinn, Janus and Hobby Lobby, which if you've forgotten ruled that birth control is different from other forms of healthcare and that employers therefore have the right to pass judgment on their employees, reproductive and sexual healthcare decisions by virtue of their religious beliefs is well, a mess. The opinion that would overturn Roe is of a piece with Harris and Hobby Lobby, which came at the same time and therefore made it rather obvious that, as I wrote at the time, they are both cases about healthcare and how it will be provided and paid for. They are also cases that make it clear, as does the draft opinion now, that I was right when I wrote, quote, what they wind up being is about reducing power on the job for thousands of mostly women, mostly low paid workers across the country. Attacks on all workers' rights often come first through attacks on those deemed less important workers. When we decide that birth control isn't a pivotal issue because it only affects some workers, or that home care workers' loss is not a loss for us all, we leave the door open for the next attack. And now we see where the next attacks are coming. Alito argues in the leaked draft that, quote, Federal and state laws ban discrimination on the basis of pregnancy that leave for pregnancy and childbirth are now guaranteed by law in many cases, that the costs of medical care associated with pregnancy are covered by insurance or government assistance, end quote. And therefore, as Chabeli Karazana of the 19th wrote, quote, that the country has made strides since 1973 when Roe v. Wade went into effect, guaranteeing abortion rights up until fetal viability. Alito suggests that progress nullifies the connection between abortion access and economic justice. But experts on childcare, paid leave, and economics said his argument fails to capture how the protections codified into law in the past five decades are still not sufficient. Carizana continued, quote, on what Alito characterizes as guaranteed family leave, the only workers who have anything close to guaranteed leave are the top 10% of earners in the country, 95% of whom have access to family leave that is unpaid, according to the Bureau of Labor Statistics. Only 36% of those highest earners also have paid family leave, and those numbers drop dramatically for the lowest paid workers, most of them women of color. 79% got unpaid family leave, and only 5% had paid family leave in 2020. Medical costs for birth are also still high, even with insurance coverage, about $4,300 on average for vaginal deliveries in 2015 and $5,200 for cesarean births, according to a wide-ranging study of more than 600,000 women in the United States between 2008 and 2015 who had healthcare insurance through their employer. End quote. And just to continue, the premise is false, Julie Cashin, a senior fellow and director for Women's Economic Justice at the Century Foundation, told Karazana, quote, even if we had access to paid family leave and childcare and insurance coverage for pregnancy and childbirth, even if we had all those things in place, which we do not, the need to have the right to abortion continues to exist, end quote abortion is a worker's issue. The biggest opponent of workers' rights on the court is also the biggest opponent of abortion rights. What is the labor movement going to do about it? We've seen strong statements from some, particularly at National Nurses United and the Association of Flight Attendants, as well as the AFL-CIO's Liz Schuler. but we need more. It is not enough to simply pay lip service to women, queer, and trans people in the labor movement. We need to have a labor movement that understands that there is little of more material concern than whether one will or will not carry a pregnancy.
2: When you go outside these days, it might seem like everybody has forgotten about the pandemic. Masks are off, the precautionary measures put in place by federal, state, and local governments, rules on masking and social distancing have by and large been lifted, and even though millions remain unvaccinated, politicians and corporations seem eager to resume business as usual and focus on economic recovery. But there are some people who may never recover from COVID-19, literally. People with long COVID, according to some studies, may number in the tens of millions, and there may be many more cases to come. Long COVID is a combination of a number of mysterious symptoms, from chronic fatigue to cognitive problems like the infamous brain fog. It can put people out of work and lead to long-term disability. And the New York Times reports, quote, A study published in January by the Brookings Institution found that long COVID could account for 15% of the millions of unfilled jobs in the United States, unquote. On top of a relatively low vaccination uptake, the U.S. has fewer health care and welfare protections for long COVID sufferers compared to Western Europe. According to Philippa Dunn, a researcher with the Solve Long COVID Initiative, the New York Times writes, Quote, since people who are unvaccinated may be at higher risk for developing long COVID, according to the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention, companies in regions with low vaccination rates like the South may have more worker shortages than those in regions with higher vaccination rates, unquote. The Times also points out that, quote, a major logistical hurdle in the United States for employees with long COVID is qualifying for unemployment benefits. There is no single test for diagnosing it, and it is only vaguely defined, with so much still unknown. That can make it harder for people to be diagnosed and gain access to disability benefits. It can also complicate responses from employers who are still navigating how to handle coronavirus-related work issues, including the fraught issue of whether COVID vaccinations should be mandatory for workers, unquote. According to a recent report published by the Solve Long COVID Initiative, quote, through January 31st, 2022, the COVID-19 pandemic has potentially caused, at minimum, 22 million cases of long COVID, with a higher estimate model suggesting more than 43 million cases. This caseload includes 7 to 13 percent of the total population of the United States. Of these cases, 7 to 14 million are expected to result in long-term disability placing individuals at risk of lifelong complex health problems and economic ruin from healthcare costs, unemployment, denied benefits, eviction, and homelessness, unquote. Considering that this may be, for many people, a burden that lasts for years or even a lifetime, it's pretty frightening to think that so many people these days are rushing to act as if the pandemic is behind us. The worst may actually lie ahead, as a society with a pathetically weak social welfare infrastructure is going to be stretched to a breaking point once again. Perhaps not with a massive spike of COVID deaths, but just the long, agonizing malaise of a virus that won't go away. It's been more than two years since the pandemic has upended our lives, and our jobs were some of the first places where we saw the status quo being dramatically disrupted. Some workplaces went remote, others shut down, still others intensified production and forced frontline workers to put their health at risk every day. The hardest-hit workers, who had the least flexibility or choice over their working conditions, were generally women, low-wage earners, and people of color. And while people braved a deadly virus to show up at work each day, many started to question whether work was actually worth dying for. One of the upshots of all this turmoil is that it has helped spur people to take action to protect their rights at work. In recent months, we've seen a rising tide of union drives, many of them clustered in industries that have historically been quite successful at keeping unions out, like food, retail, and logistics. Now, with the pandemic seemingly in a slow retreat, organizers are taking stock of what they've accomplished. The first unionized Amazon warehouse, hundreds of union elections pending at Starbucks outlets across the country, and a fresh crop of labor organizers. I recently spoke on a panel with some women who are at the helm of this movement to talk about how their experiences as women have shaped their perspective as workers and organizers. The panel was sponsored by the Century Foundation and Will Empower, a joint initiative of Georgetown University's Kalmanovitz Initiative for Labor and the Working Poor and Rutgers University's Center for Innovation and in Worker Organization. The panel featured Nasli Samadzadeh, a senior software engineer at the New York Times and a member of the newly recognized New York Times Tech Guild, Maddie Van Hook, a shift supervisor at Starbucks in Cleveland, Ohio, and a leader with Starbucks Workers United and Jennifer Bates, a worker organizer at Amazon's Fulfillment Center, BMH1, in Bessemer, Alabama, and a leader of the Bamazon Union, an organizing effort of the Retail, Wholesale, and Department Store Union, or RWDSU. We'll start with an introduction from Jennifer, talking about why she's organizing at Amazon.
4: Right now, we're embarked in the middle of our second election and waiting on ballots and challenges um, for the outcome of the second go round. And right now, only thing we're doing is continuing to uh, encourage the employees uh, to continue to stand and uh, continue to fight Um, because it's a long fight. Um, It got frustrated at times, but we're still in it. And we're not going to stop until there's a change. Nazli?
5: Uh, sorry, I was like very moved by by what Jennifer said about how it's a long fight. So um, uh, I work at the Times where we uh, just about, it was the very beginning of March, it was March 3rd, um, we had our ballot count. Um, very short version of the story is that um, on the tech side of things we've been unionizing for, um, we started having our earliest conversations towards the end of 2018, early 2019. So it took a very long time for us to talk to everyone in our unit about 600 people you know we were already into the great resignation during a lot of this new people were joining but like leaders in the in our our organizing committee were leaving um but we we signed cards and went public with the supermajority in april of 2021 um and did not actually we did not get a ballot count until march of 2022 um so what jennifer said about just it's such a long journey um really resonated we uh faced a lot of Anti-union messaging, we actually went to a hearing with the National Labor Relations Board about the suitability of of who should be allowed to be in our unit of tech workers. Um, Really happily, both for us and as a precedent for tech unions in the future, they determined that um, everyone in our unit, uh, in fact, do share a community of interest and are, in fact, part of the same union. And um, our our NLRB mail-in election began... Um, a couple of months after that, and I'm like thrilled to say that we we won by a margin of uh, a 404, 404 yes votes to 88 no votes, which felt just like an absolute mandate to to build the strongest contract we possibly can. But right now, you know, having having celebrated that that win, um, we are kind of girding our loins for the next process of bargaining a contract. Um, so we are forming our unit council, we are forming our bargaining committee. We're starting to talk to each other about what we want in a contract. Um, so. Long road ahead, but uh, really cool to look back and see how far we've come. And Maddie,
6: yeah, um, kind of similar um, to what Nosley was saying. Um, not with the you know super long process, but we're just kind of waiting at this point. Um, ballots started getting sent out yesterday, actually, um, so we'll have the next couple of weeks to send those back. Um, and this came after several months of kind of waiting to hear one way or the other. We also had a hearing with the NLRB. Um, I think that's been pretty common with a lot of Starbucks that have filed as they try to push for that just to, you know, push everything back and add another step to the process. But we filed in early January and then our hearing was early February. And then um, it was kind of radio silence for a couple of months. <laughs> but then um, a couple weeks ago we were, you know, told that our ballots were going to be sent out. Um, so we're super excited. Um, and yeah, we're just kind of in that same place of starting to form you know the bargaining committee. It's starting to get um concrete sort of ideas of what we're gonna negotiate for um when that time eventually comes. I don't know if anybody saw, but yesterday, Howard Schultz actually sent out a memo, and managers were sending them to us, um outlining. A bunch of new like benefits and pay raises and such. And in the memo, he specifically said that unionized stores will not get them, which isn't really surprising. Um, but it does give us a very good starting point moving into negotiations. So um really kind of a blessing in disguise there. <laughs> um so yeah we have that and we're just kind of um waiting. Uh May 24th will be our official ballot count. So we'll know by then one way or the other. Um, I think at our store we're all pretty confident that we have a very strong majority we pretty much have since the beginning um it helps that there's only like 20 of us <laughs> so it was super easy to get through everyone but yeah we're just kind of hanging out
5: till then such a classic move to be like well we don't know if the we're going to be allowed to offer these things to the union and it's like yep. buddy all you have to do is ask <laughs> and then they'll say yes and then it'll yep. be done
6: anyway i promise you we we are not going to stop you from doing that <laughs>
2: My corporate hands are tied. So our first question, well, is um, both sort of hoping to get some general reflections from you. Um, So the labor movement um, has seen a flurry of victories, both big and small over the past several months. And to be honest, I think, It has surprised even some folks in the labor movement, um, especially because a lot of it has been happening in groups that have often been seen, perhaps erroneously, as hard to organize. So on the one hand, we have a lot of low-wage precarious sectors um, in which a lot of women and people of color are employed. On the other hand, we have uh, the so-called white-collar sectors like tech, in which it may be difficult sometimes to inspire collective action or Sort of grassroots working class consciousness. So, I'd like to go around and have each of you talk about one thing you've learned about organizing from your experiences over the past several months. And did you discover anything or were you surprised uh, by anything um, that might cut against some of the assumptions and stereotypes that people might have about the labor movement and about your industry? So, Nasli, would you like to go?
5: Yeah, absolutely. I I like to say that organizing has taught me more. I guess both taught me more about human nature than anything else that I've done and also made me more friends than anything else that I've ever done. Um, The act of getting to know someone and just doing even the most basic agitating about talking about your working conditions are just going to make you a lot more familiar with them than in some cases, even years of just working together can. And I think that's by design. You know, a lot of what workplaces are meant to do is to kind of suppress the parts of us that like might have a lot in common. Um, What, what surprised me most was just how surprising people, people are, Um, you know, there was, you know, I had a colleague who like earlier in his career had worked in um, a trade union at a theater and uh, you know, the the theater and entertainment industries are historically very unionized and particularly um, in the kind of backstage area of things like, his union had like left a bad taste in his mouth. It was the kind of, he told the the joke that was like, they say, how do you get a theater union member to change a light bulb? And the answer is you send like five people and four of them watch the fifth do the thing. Like anyway, uh just and and in talking to him, we, you know, got to an understanding that like we are making this new union. We're we're starting from zero in some ways. This can be what we want it to be. Um, there were people whose You know, you would you would never guess from other kind of like demographic information about them. But it turned out that their their dad had been in a union and they immediately understood the utility of this for even for different, you know, even for a a white collar, even for a highly paid digital worker. And and really I think important thing that we all kind of slowly came to is that like there's there's no white collar and there's no blue collar. Like we are all in the end precarious workers and um uh like Having a union like gives us all so much more like power, power and leverage. And a direct example, actually, so at the New York Times, there's a there's a long history, there's a decades long history of of unions. The um, entire newsroom, um, with very few exceptions, is in a union, and our printing plant, which prints the paper every day, um, is in a union. There are like two days in the past like hundred years in the New York Times hasn't been printed, and one of them was uh, because of a labor strike. Um, to give you a sense of like how strong that union has been historically and and how big it is. But the, the workers at, at our uh, printing plant in College Point were able to use their union membership to like get a lot of protections in place, particularly in the very early days of COVID when they were going in to print the paper every day, when we didn't know anything about what was going on with the virus yet. Um, so I think particularly over the past two years, it's just become so clear that like, there's nothing special about anyone's job. Um, everyone stands to benefit a lot from from a union and, and um, it's by kind of like getting to know each other and like learning more about what makes us like wildly different from each other uh, that I think has helped us all understand that like, oh, actually we have this one thing in common, it's that we're workers and we could stand uh, to really improve our conditions uh, by working, by having a strong contract.
4: Well, my experience um, was similar to hers and a little different because um, I realized shortly after um, the first vote that Alabama struggled with the education of unionization. And prior to going to Amazon, I worked at a pipe company for 10 years. It was, it was um, uh, unionized. And another facility that I worked at for four years was unionized as well. So when I went to um, Amazon and shortly after being there, you know, most of us realized that we needed a union. And of course, some of my... Um, co-workers from the pipe company were also there as well. But me thinking, because, okay, we've been unionized, we thought that it would be easy that a lot of people understood what a union was and the benefits of having a union. But soon after we finished the first election, we realized that having conversations that a lot of people really don't understand a union. And Amazon... uh, Focus more on uh, scare tactics and manipulation, and that further pushed them back into a corner of, I don't want to lose my job. I don't know what is a union for. And we're thinking that maybe your grandparents may have talked to you, and some have, and some parents and uncles and aunts did educate people. And one of the things I learned is everybody doesn't know about a union. And one thing I wish could happen that they would begin to teach labor um, in middle school and not allow it to be a choice in college and to go ahead and educate people, uh, especially younger generation, because in Alabama, you can start working at 16. So the earlier you learn the benefits of having a union, uh, the more uh, better I think that you'll be able to unionize knowing that you will gain benefits. From it uh, we learned really quickly. So the second um, time around, we did more educating, and it felt good that we were able to sit down and educate people and give them some of the knowledge on the benefits of having a union. And also, in one of the in the last job that I was in uh, that was unionized, I worked with the majority of men. So working at Amazon, I was surrounded by more women, and I had heart to heart conversations. I heard sad story. There were emotional um, conversations that I had to let me know the struggle that women are really having on the job, you know, with their families, their children, having to work two and three jobs. And that really um, gave me the energy and the fire to continue to push, you know, uh, women having issues, sickness, you know, you're having to go to the restroom. And I think right now this push right here all over the country is one that is necessary and is right on time for this surge in our era today.
6: Yeah, both very great stories. Um, I I feel like we've been watching the Amazon struggle for a really long time (laughs) and just trying to, you know, support. Um, And I know that like at Starbucks, we've tried to take inspiration from that as much as possible. I think to Michelle's original question one of the things that surprised me and this sounds kind of funny but just that this search has been from Starbucks so successful um <laughs> because I don't know Starbucks seems like kind of a weird place for a very big labor push um like it's just a bunch of I, stereotypically you know just a bunch of like kid you know kids part-time workers um and you know if you don't know that much about the company, they sort of pride themselves on being pretty progressive as a workplace relatively. Um, they, you know, tend to pay higher and, um, they're usually really inclusive for like queer employees. Like I I feel like probably the majority of my store is somewhere under the LGBTQ umbrella. Um, so, you know, it's like, on, on the surface level, it seems like a decent place to work. And so when we first started talking about unionizing, um, a lot of people, not coworkers, but more in the community, were like, Oh, but it's Starbucks. Like, you know, I thought you guys were treated well, like, (laughs) you know, you're just, you know, making coffee. Um, and it's kind of like Nosley said, like, we're not, I mean, we're just all workers, you know, like it doesn't matter what we're doing. I mean, we're still working. Um, And in my head, even if Starbucks was, you know, did live up to those standards, um, we could still use a union (laughs) for accountability. I mean, that's, you know, how it works in my head. But, I mean, just every day I feel like I'm inspired by something one of my coworkers does or something, you know, some big win for Starbucks. Like, I know yesterday there were seven or eight ballot counts across the country and all of them won and a huge landslide. So, you know, just seeing that every day is, um, super inspiring. And then, yeah, like they both said, just talking to my coworkers every day and learning about, you know, I mean, seeing what they're going through, of course, we we're close. Like we're a pretty small staff. We all work pretty well together. We all know what each other go through more or less, you know, at work. Um, but then kind of getting, Deeper with it and knowing, like, okay, this is how this work life affects you outside of Starbucks, like at your home and your family. Um, and just kind of strengthening the little community we all have with each other and being like, okay, like this is why we're doing this fight, you know, like we're fighting for each other and with each other. Um, and the other thing I think that really caught us all by surprise was how. Big. It felt like you know. Within the first couple of weeks, we filed. We had people from, I mean, like the mayor came, um, Nina Turner came, Sherrod Brown came. Like we just had all of these like big people walking into our little Starbucks and like you know telling us you know oh, like we're so proud of you. This is so great. Like you guys are going to do so good. And we're just like we're just we're just a bunch of kids at a coffee shop. You know, like I don't know. It just felt very um, big. I guess very important. Um, which it is, of course, like now making all those connections and seeing all of this happening in all kinds of industries all over the country and the world. Um, it's like, wow, we really are part of like this huge thing, which (laughs) I think also helped a lot of my coworkers kind of, I don't know, like recommit themselves in some ways, get past the anxiety of like, oh, this, this is like kind of scary. Like, you know, are they going to what are they going to do to us? like what are they going to say? um but having that much bigger support behind us they were like, "Oh, okay. It doesn't matter. Never mind." <laughs> like this is, you know, this is what we need to be doing. Um so yeah, it's been it's been amazing. <laughs> Thank
2: you. Um so interesting to see um, you know, there- people from different industries all sort of coming back to this idea of just um, learning a lot from just connecting with people at work, right? So um, kind of shows you uh, how solidarity can be developed in any setting.
5: Kind of related but- to that, can I ask uh, Jennifer a follow-up? Mm-hmm. Kind of to Maddie's point about uh, like, you know, the mayor coming in and, and thanking the Starbucks workers. What did it feel like in Bessemer to have like the country watching, Um, I felt like glued to my screen, like, you know, waiting for updates out of that.
4: It was amazing. Um, We had the Democratic Party to come down, Danny Glover. uh, You know, we had all the support. We had Biden to even speak out, you know, and it was an emotional moment. But it was it was an awesome moment to know that we had that much support and then to hear from international people standing up. And we understood then like, you know, this is not just a little small town uh Bessemer fight. But it's a fight that's all across the country. They weren't just rooting for us, but now we're they're rooting for themselves. Now we can stand up and we can do this. So people were asked, you know, how do you feel that, you know, all of this we were just shocked. Like We just want to unionize our little small building, but it became a momentum around the country of the things that people really felt who had an opportunity to come out and stand and say, you know what? We've been feeling the same way. We've been disvalued. And now it's our time to stand up and take back our power. Thank you. So, throughout the
2: pandemic, we have seen workers taking extraordinary risks at Amazon and other places to defend their rights in the workplace or to demand fair pay and better working conditions, Um, and others have just uh, decided to, you know, stop working. (laughs) Others have quit their jobs altogether. Um, So, I wanted to ask each of you Was there a moment that made you want to take the risk of trying to organize at your workplace? Do you remember um, any kind of turning point or some kind of uh, experience that just sort of lit a spark?
4: Yes, I'll start with that one. Um, After seeing a lot of employees being fired um, and disrespected by, human resource, writing people up. And the thing that really sparked uh, my decision was when I began to hear the chatter from other people um, who were having issues. And when I went out the security checkpoint one day and the lights went out, went off on me, and they told me to step to the right to scan my badge and go into the other room. And so once I went into the room, I had to take off my ambassador vest, shoes, empty all of my pockets. They they want to do a security check to make sure you didn't steal anything. So once I got my stuff back, I asked them, would that time be added back to my break? Because mind you, this was at break time. And when I was told that I didn't get that time back for my break, that I can only use the remainder of my break, I knew then that... It was time to unionize because it was an abuse of power and we were already going through a lot in the facility. It was hot. You know, one person unloading a truck. It was so much going on. And that was my turning point right there. When I've seen people go in there and and get flagged by the the lights, but I didn't know um, what happens once you get back there or the process. But when I was told that you don't get your break back, then I knew that that was the, the time that it's, it's time to unionize.
5: Yeah, they say you know the best time to unionize your workplace is when things are going well. Unfortunately, no no one ever actually does that. <laughs> at the um, at the times I know our our campaign started um, our campaign didn't start uh, a couple a couple of folks who were on the OC with me um, started having these conversations uh, it was actually, it's kind of funny. One was around, um, the times had just published this, like, horrifically homophobic op-ed, um, which they just do every once in a while. It's awful. Uh, and, uh, folks at the company were like, oh, like this makes me feel unwelcome and unsafe as a queer member of the staff here. Um, I wonder if there's anything we could ever do about that. Um, and kind of simultaneously, there was another issue where, um, there'd been a, n- a number of people who'd been advocating for gender ne- neutral restrooms throughout our building. And it was taking a long time to make any kind of headway on that. Um, and it kind of was very similar to, to Jennifer's story. It was just like, Oh, like this isn't right. Things could be better, but I, there's nothing I can do to make this happen. Um, but of course there is something to do. It's to very slowly talk to all of your colleagues over a period of years and to form a union. Um, so yeah, I think and and I think the, the great resignation kind of has has spurred this in other industries too, of just an awareness that this isn't right and this is the thing that we can do about it. Um uh, at my part of part of what brought me to organizing, um at my at my last job, I worked at Vox Media, another media company in New York. And um the kind of something that went poorly there was that uh the company very abruptly with no transition period moved moved us to being paid in arrears instead of uh, on, on every payday and long story, but there was like a two week period when no one got paid um, when they should have been. And like everyone is freaking out because obviously more people than you would ever think are living paycheck to paycheck in all industries because money is hard and living like the cost of living is only going up. And so in our kind of like company slack, people are asking questions and they're scared and they're confused and someone, someone typed, "Wouldn't it be cool if we had a union and we could deal like do something about this?" Um, and like I think me and that guy and like one other person had a had coffee like within the week, and we're like, "Actually," um, and that was kind of the the origin story of of that company unionizing. So unfortunately, it's usually something awful, which I feel like is part of what this organizing surge is coming um, in reaction to, but uh i guess as difficult as things are i hope that we are going to make some kind of lemonade out of these shitty lemons
2: lemonade out of shitty lemons <laughs> we can all get behind um yeah, we need that on a hat <laughs> um you drink at starbucks lemonade out of shitty lemons um yeah <laughs> Organized labor um, is often stereotyped as being largely comprised of men, uh, often white men who would work typical, quote unquote, blue collar jobs, despite the fact that women and people of color make up a sizable majority of union workers today. But the latest surge in labor organizing is actually put women at the helm of a lot of this workplace activism. So why do you think that is? And can you point to any personal experiences you've had while organizing and maybe talking to other women workers? I know Jennifer was talking about this earlier. Um, experiences really that really capture how labor and gender intersect at this moment in the labor movement.
6: Yeah, that's a good point. Um, I think we were talking about that a lot when we first started, because you know, a lot of my coworkers like didn't really know anything about unionizing me included (laughs) there was a big learning curve for a lot of us um and there were you know a lot of people brought up like you know that's like you know what our grandparents did like steel workers and auto workers and stuff you know like what does that have to do with starbucks and i think um maybe this is bringing it to big scale but i think that the labor movement is just inherently tied to everything else within intersectionality, right? Like women's rights and queer liberation and, you know, putting power back into like our black coworkers and our coworkers of color and all of these different things. Um, uh, It's, you know, it's a very real tangible struggle. And I think um, the labor movement has been a very tangible way for people to kind of take control back over one of those things um, I think, you know, as a queer woman seeing um recent news <laughs> and you know, not so recent news, just um I mean, we've always struggled more. I mean, we all, you know, we all know. Um, <laughs> and I think um and I mean growing up with um a single mom and two sisters, it was just the four of us, um, you know, we had to be you know we were raised to be outspoken and um assertive and that wasn't a bad thing um and i think that a lot of especially younger women now like women in the younger generation are just kind of saying like screw it <laughs> um like i you know i'm tired of being quiet i'm tired of just sitting and letting older white men run my life um and i think it's like i said i think just taking power in the workplace back is a very like concrete way that we can feel like okay you know like we're we're doing something we're making our lives better we're making our coworkers' lives better we can control some of the shitty lemons (laughs) that are being thrown at us like this is a very I don't know it just feels very um real in some ways where a lot of things seem more abstract like well maybe we can't fix you know the whole patriarchy thing right now but we can start a union (laughs) and maybe maybe it'll be something you know (laughs)
2: Small steps, um, Maddie. I think I, I'm sorry. I think I skipped you for the last question. Lane just pointed that out. So, um, do you have a a story um, about you know like a spark moment that happened with you? Just to extend the shitty lemons metaphor. A little bit. <laughs>
6: um, honestly, it was um, the Starbucks in Buffalo winning. As I said, I only started in August, and I think they won probably. November-ish, like late um 2021. So I hadn't been there super long. Um, but I knew that, you know, it's not the best work environment. There's a lot of like just issues. And to see them when in Buffalo, led by Casey Moore, who is amazing and we love her, um, to see that success happen, some of my coworkers and I were like running to the back of house, like, okay, we should, we should do it too. Like, <laughs> you know, because we'd heard whispers that other stores were thinking about it and um honestly it was just kind of like they can't stop us all at once (laughs) like you know maybe they might win some places but the more people we get and the more power we give to this movement like the better chance we have at winning so yeah big shout out to Casey for starting all of this (laughs) she's the best and it's just been winning ever since I guess
2: to go back to our question about women's experiences organizing. Uh, Jennifer, did you want to talk a little bit more about um, what you had mentioned earlier about speaking with other women at work and everything?
4: Well, yes. Um, I want to talk about one of the issues we had with um, Amazon. One of their tactics were to tell the employees that unions only want to um, bring in seniority. And we don't think that anyone could, anyone should come in has a better um, work ethic than someone who's been here uh, should have to wait to be promoted. And one of the things that I noticed since I've been there that the reason why they don't want to unionize to bring in seniority or recognize the employees in the facility is because out of two years, I've seen a bulk of men come in and put into leadership and we're the ones who's training them for a job that they say we're not qualified for. And there are men after men and they're bringing them in from the outside instead of promoting from the inside. So that's another huge issue. And one of the things back to what Maddie was saying earlier about how they were saying that some places were getting increased. That's one of the things that um, the anti-union people spoke in one of our meetings that, um, that some, if there is ever a raise in the company, that some Amazons will get a fifty dollar increase, and we won't get it because of we're unionized.
5: It's so disappointing.
4: <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I think for for better or
5: worse, almost it almost all in any industry that I am aware of, um, women and and people of color and and really people of any minority are are promoted at a at a slower rate and one thing that I really loved about the process of organizing and of getting to know my coworkers on the organizing committee at general meetings just in general um was getting to create our own kind of uh, like i don't want to say power structure but web of relationships um I had so much to learn from you know, everyone on the organizing committee, but particularly I can think of, of several women who, who's like the example they said, I kind of like still think about when I go into difficult conversations or like thinking about how I want to change something. Our unit council uh, unit chair is a woman named Kathy Jong, who is just like absolutely incredible, was like, has been there from day one, the kind of like, kind of simultaneous fire and patience that she brings to kind of difficult situations I like just co- admire completely um Vicky Crosson is our um our unit secretary and uh she she does have a library science degree but the like organization and kind of like can can do that she brings uh to our our union proceedings is just like really cool to see Um, Shay Culpepper is another, I'm not, I'm going to, this is the last one. I promise as a data engineer at the times who the way that she kind of like sliced and diced our spreadsheets of, of, uh, our colleagues, as we were trying to talk to them was just so amazing. And like all of these are women who I would have had no reason to work with in my day-to-day job. But now like, not only do I, you know, know them and am friends with them and have benefited from their examples. Um, I also know that if, any of them ever have trouble getting promoted at work, I will know firsthand that it is absolute bullshit. Um, and and also, you know, hopefully we'll be able to like be part of, of doing something about that. So there's so much that I have benefited from, from the example of other women and that it's like made my job more, more like kind of rich um, through, through the process of organizing. And, and it's, it's the ability to like have those relationships so that we can also lift each other up at work when facing those kind of like, again, kind of like disappointing, but not surprising examples of of systemic um, uh, discrimination. That is, that's part of what's so great about it.
2: So uh, our last question, um, official question is, um, with the union victories that we've seen in recent months, we have seen workers deploy Um, some innovative and often unconventional strategies when organizing in industries or workplaces that unions haven't really been able to penetrate very much in the past. So can you tell us about any approaches or tactics that you've developed or applied while organizing that felt creative to you or experimental?
5: I can take this really fast. I think that the internet has, has really changed what organizing looks like. It's just so much easier to be in contact with people. You don't have to have their home phone number. Um, just like the ability to use a smartphone and to like meet people where they are. Maybe that's like social media. Maybe that's like, I don't know, WhatsApp, like what, whatever it is. I think that's really changed the game. But I also think like the kind of flip side of that is that it can be really tempting to find kind of like digital uh, kind of like shows of of virality as progress, but like the only real progress is the union being recognized and actually making the contract. So it's it's kind of this double-edged thing where the attention is really wonderful, but the attention on its own is not going to change things. Um, so I've I've just found that so fascinating um to kind of like take note of uh while organizing at you know at a digital shop, but also just like in a world where the internet is much bigger than it used to be.
0: Yeah,
2: definitely. As, uh, as a member of the media, also, like, you can sort of, it's sometimes difficult to cut through, like, um, you know, a lot, of the, um, a lot of the glitter on social media. So it's good to, and I think unionization itself is um, one of these analog processes that can only really be, done. it sort of reminds us, right, it's important to connect with people. But, um, yeah. Others?
4: Yes, one of the things that um, we did as far as being creative is we took up space on the inside. Um, The second go around, instead of taking my break and going to the car, sitting down, I would stay in the break room and we will have, we will host meetings there during our lunch break. And we had an opportunity to talk to employees who were coming in and out and some who were on the fence that was holding their ballots that was one of the most creative things that we thought of like at the last minute. And people walked away from the table and said, we're going home to vote. Um, I had discussions with people that had a vote no shirt on that changed their mind after having a conversation with us. So um, suspending my lunch break and we uh, put on panels inside the break room during during lunch hour helped and it was very creative for us. And also um, not going straight home after working our shift, we stayed outside to ask answer questions because most of us were on the day shift. As night shift was coming in, they were able to ask questions and tell us some of the things that were going on, on night shift that we needed to know to kind of help uh, get the news and education out to the night shift workers who had uh, concerns as well. So. Um, Taking up time after work, not going straight home and creating space on the inside during our breaks, our lunch breaks, uh, helped a whole lot.
6: I love that. I think we'll probably we we could we could make some use of that. Um, One of the things that we did. I mean, like I said, Casey Moore and Buffalo, just their like, you know, their whole movement has helped us. A lot in organizing our folks and people in our community. Um, they've given us a lot of like materials and inspiration and a lot of training sessions and stuff. And one of the things that we got from that was we got like this big, um, Airbnb through workers United, like they helped us pay for it and stuff. And, um, people from Pittsburgh, um, who are also organizing, you know, Starbucks workers United came and then a bunch of Cleveland folks came and we just like, kind of knocked out a bunch of stores in Cleveland and surrounding areas. Um, so we just kind of canvassed basically. Um, and we printed little business cards with our info email address and stuff. So we handed those out and then they went back. I wasn't actually able to be there, but I was FaceTimed in and <laughs> I was getting texted and stuff. Um, they went back to the Airbnb and they just like had a cookout, and people from the other stores that, they ended up talking to throughout the day came over and um, it seemed like it was a really, really good um, like networking opportunity for people. Even if those stores don't end up unionizing ever or for a long time, like they at least, you know, have our info. They met people in person and we're like, Hey, like we're willing and ready to help you however we can. Um, and I thought that was really good. And everyone that went said it went really well and they had a really good time kind of getting off of, online for once (laughs) in two and a half years (laughs) Um, being able to meet people face to face and just kind of have those
5: conversations. I feel like the common thread of, of all these answers is like uh, unionizing your workplace. It takes time. Um, It takes your break. It takes your evening hours. Um, But, but it is, it is so worth it. I think like it's, it's, it's a worthwhile investment. um, But yeah, I think it can be tempting to say that I think like, you know, women kind of take up a lot of this kind of nurturing work or um, development work. Hopefully like part of why, you know, we're all here is that we're bringing other people in to share this work with us. Um, but it is, it's, it's work and it's hard and it it takes up time. And I think it's like absolutely worth it, but um, it like effectively, yeah, there were, there were points of, of the past year or so. And like, this was, it was my, it was my hobby. It was like the primary thing that I did in my free time. And I look forward to it being less the primary thing that I do in my free time for a little while, but um, uh, worth it again. Yeah, it can be
2: like a second job, but a job that is actually enjoyable. <laughs> so um, before we get into the q and A, I I wanted to ask if any of you have questions for each other about your experiences or, you know, best practices and that sort of thing.
6: I'll throw something out. Um, I feel like this gets brought up a lot, but I know, Nazely, you were just saying it takes up a lot of time. Um, what are your best ways that you have found to like take a step back <laughs> or like be able to still take care of like yourself and your people outside of the logistics, I guess.
5: Yeah. I think I really bet, like had, had a privilege of being of such a, such a large unit that we were able, we had lots of people kind of like step back from the OC and bring new people on and like, now that we're organized, like I'm not going to be on the bargaining committee, uh, at least not in the kind of like immediate future. And I like, feel horrifically guilty about it. Um, but also like, I'm i am tired. And, uh, you know, I was just talking yesterday to I had my like, kind of first one on one with my new shop steward. And uh, he was on the organizing committee, he like, for maybe a year, but like left, left it about a year ago. And he's like, zippy and refreshed and ready to go and, and ready to have these conversations. And it was kind of like, okay, we're like tagged we're tagging off uh, each other off, like, it's time for you to step back in, it's time for me to step out and like, take take a break for a little while. So it's easier with the larger unit. Um, but yeah, just like, no union is, you know, if a union depends on one person to be good, that's a bad union. The point is that uh, it's something that we all do together. Um, but I'm curious actually to hear Jennifer answer the same question, particularly as you go into a second election and just like
4: that mm-hmm. must be exhausting. Well, yeah, um, for two years, and there have been plenty of times, you know, that I've said I'm tired. I am so tired. I have to take a step back. Sometime we have to go into uh, uh, doubling up on the events. Sometimes uh, some of our core group can't participate. And one of the things that we would do is we have people, um, what we call, uh, if they're not a one, they're two. They're, they're supporters. They may not want to be a, um, a leader, but they are support strong supporters. So what one of the things I would suggest is when we can't come or some of our other core group can't be at some of our actions, We would take a couple of people that we're close to uh, in the facility who helps out on the floor, say, hey, we'll pick up the phone call. We're we're giving out T-shirts and flyers in the morning. We really need to bring in a couple of people to help. Yes, I can come in and work a little early. And even though they don't come to all of the other actions, we pull, pull in some of the people who are not so afraid to come and just participate. So that other people can take care of family and, or just go home for the evening and get some rest. So that was, you know, one of the things we um, did as well, but it's tiring. I mean, I, I, I <laughs> ooh, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. It, it's, I've been saying, uh, you know, I'm tired, but I got to keep going. I take my break, but sometimes I say, well, I do morning shift. I'm not going to stay in the evening. And I end up staying in the evening anyway.
6: Yeah. I feel like that's hard. Um, and I know like myself and my coworkers have noticed that too, like, you know, feeling kind of a reignited passion for like the work that we're doing. It's hard to step away sometimes. Um, but I know that we, um, maybe not so much now that, you know, we're starting to get our ballots and voting soon and stuff, but, um, leading up to this, we've been working a lot as a city. Um, so we have a group chat with, you know people from my store and then the other few stores in our district that have filed and we kind of do a lot of the work as that unit too and i think that helps um just being able to like yeah like you both were saying like okay i'm tired you have the energy you do it And <laughs> just like let me know how it goes um yeah thanks guys
0: you're listening to belabored a descent magazine podcast Links to articles mentioned in this episode may be found at descentmagazine.org. That was a conversation on women leading the labor movement, presented by the Century Foundation and Will Empower, and featuring our own Michelle Chen, Jennifer Bates, worker organizer and leader of the Bessemer Amazon Union organizing effort, Nasli Samadzada, New York Times software engineer and New York Times Tech Guild organizing committee member, and Maddie Van Hook, Starbucks shift supervisor and leader with Starbucks Workers United. And now it is time for everybody's favorite segment, argh, I wish I'd written that, about the pieces we loved this week and didn't write. I'm talking about a piece at Novara Media by Rivka Brown, titled Couriers Stunt Dalston's Gentrification, The Police and Council Want Them Gone. This is not only a great piece that illustrates the way working conditions, policing, rising rents, gentrification, and immigration are all interwoven, but it also covers something that I personally witnessed. On Saturday evening, I was walking home to the flat I'm currently staying in, in London's Dalston neighborhood, when I walked straight into a police riot. Specifically, the streets were packed with ordinary people facing down what looked like hundreds of cops. Cell phones were out, shouts of shame could be heard, and as I stopped to try to figure out what was going on, I saw a friend and local labor organizer in the midst of the fray. Several people were thrown in the back of police vans, and I personally witnessed police batoning people, throwing them to the ground, and in one especially horrific moment, a courier knocked to the ground and trapped beneath his bike by a police cruiser, which continued to move forward as the courier and the people who rushed to his aid screamed for them to stop. The car was literally pushed backward off the bike, and the man's leg, which would have been shattered by the crowd. I have seen a lot in my days as a journalist, and that one's still sticking with me. Anyway. As Brown writes, quote, around 500 gathered in Dalston, North London on Saturday night to resist a pre-planned police operation. On Monday night, police announced that eight had been charged with offenses, including threatening behavior, obstructing police and assaulting a police officer. One was charged with a racially aggravated public order offense. The raid is the latest attempt to force couriers out of the most central, increasingly gentrified part of Dalston, a long term project spearheaded by Hackney Council and enforced by Hackney police. End quote. The police claimed that the crackdown was on e-scooters and moped-enabled crime, whatever that is. But what most people on the ground said was that they saw police harassing couriers who assemble on Ashwin Street to rest between orders in the kind of informal workplace that gig economy workers rely on. Those couriers were being asked for immigration papers and other such things. And riders, Brown writes, alerted local activist networks and the crowd began to form. Then she explains, quote, the police demanded one courier's mobile phone in order to check whether it had delivery apps installed. When those present informed the courier that he didn't have to comply, the officer attempted to grab the phone from the courier's hand. Then, as is typical of the hostile environment, the police used an unrelated operation as the pretext for border work. According to the Hackney police, later in the operation, they discovered the same courier whose phone they'd attempted to seize was wanted for immigration offenses. When officers attempted to arrest the man, the crowd resisted. The crowd pulled back the courier and he escaped. A protester was arrested in the scuffle and taken away in the police van. To Zoe Garbett, a green counselor for Dalston Ward, that could have been a moment for the police to leave. Instead, officers stayed, purely it seemed to New Statesman journalist Samir Giraj to inflame the situation. I saw no attempt whatsoever by the police to de-escalate the situation at any point, says Jiraj, who was present throughout most of the incident. When the police eventually cleared the area over an hour later, the crowd dispersed within minutes, end quote. The article, which we will link to in the show notes, contains video and photos from the area that correspond with what eyewitness and what the article says. But the story is bigger than one night's conflict, and that's one of the reasons this article is so important. Brown writes, quote, multiple couriers who spoke to Novara Media, including Eddie, a 29-year-old courier who has worked from Ashwin Street for six years say that operations like Saturday's happen constantly. John Kirk, a delivery rider and IWGB staff organizer, cites a near-permanent police presence with cops asking to see drivers' order numbers or insurance details. Often, police work in collaboration with parking attendants. According to FOI data obtained by Garbutt, between October 2020 and June 2021, they handed out 2,530 parking fines, equivalent to about £164,000 on Ashwin Street alone. Kirk says wardens often hand out fines as soon as couriers leave their vehicles unattended, despite a 20-minute loading time in the bays. In March, IWGB won an extended observation period, meaning that wardens now have to observe vehicles unattended for a full 20 minutes before issuing a fine. The riders say that doing their jobs shouldn't have to be this hard. Nobody here is a criminal, says Richard, a 34-year-old rider from Brazil, noting that when the riders complain about actual crime, stolen bikes, for example... The police never come. Yet the crackdown makes sense within the broader picture of local gentrification. The riders may not be criminals, but they are undesirables, and the police and council want them out. End quote. But of course, she notes couriers are at once a symptom of Dawson's gentrification and its bane. Their proliferation in the area has tracked an influx of cash rich, time poor young white professionals. Yet the couriers are also supposedly immiserating their clientele end quote. So the gig economy expands in service of the relatively well-off but overworked, the working-class people of color who fill the gig economy jobs are pushed out of their old neighborhoods, rent goes up for everyone, the cops come in and try to pit one against the other, and immigration is used to terrorize the same workers who are doing the jobs we all increasingly rely on. This is, of course, a labor story. IWGB, who I was talking about just before, is in fact a union. And Brown notes, quote, displays of police power such as Saturday's immigration raid appear to follow those of rider power. On April 29th, riders undertook a boycott of the local restaurant Wingstop for refusing to allow riders to use its toilets and forcing them to wait outside in the cold. Another raid earlier this year took place just six days after the town hall protest, leading some to connect the two, end quote. But if there is anything hopeful about this story, it is that the community came out to resist and the crowd was very mixed. It was not just workers of color resisting the police. It was, in fact, young local white people and a lot of people who were walking by, not just me, stopped, took out their cameras and took part. And so in the words of driver Waleed, which Brown uses to close her piece, while police try to make trouble, the people in the community don't actually agree with such violent policing and immigration crackdowns. And many of them put their own bodies on the line to prevent it. And Waleed said, quote, we deliver for them. We come in the middle of the night. We do a good job for the community. We deliver for sick people. We hold our community. We are family.
2: My pick for ARG is How the Construction Industry Preys on Workers Newly Released from Prison by Katie Jane Fernellius in In These Times. Prison is one of the most difficult places to be, but sometimes what's even harder than being imprisoned is staying out after you're released. In New York, the revolving door of probation and parole compels formerly incarcerated people to struggle to comply with the bureaucratic rigmarole of the terms of their parole or probation, which typically involve frequent check-ins with a supervising officer and, for many, some proof that you're being a productive member of society, including holding down a job. Failure to comply with these terms can result in being sent back to prison, which is a major contributor to the high rate of recidivism for the formerly incarcerated. And when people are released under parole or probation and under pressure to find a job, they are extremely vulnerable to exploitation. And New York has spawned a kind of cottage industry of so-called body shops or labor brokers that connect formerly incarcerated workers to low-wage jobs, particularly in construction. Fernelius explains, quote, while these people are no longer in prison, they often remain under community supervision, being that they have to regularly check in with a correctional officer to make sure that they are meeting all the conditions of their release, like holding down a job. In some cases, workers were connected to these body shops through reentry organizations, which aim to help recently incarcerated people transition back into life outside prison where employment opportunities can be difficult to find if you have a record. However, once these workers found themselves in those jobs, they frequently experienced low wages and even unsafe working conditions, unquote. You might think this sounds a bit like labor trafficking, and you wouldn't be entirely wrong. While these workers are not being directly coerced into these jobs, they are being taken advantage of by employers hungry for so-called cheap labor, and all the better if it's being done by people who aren't going to complain or quit when they're paid too little or not given proper protective gear or end up getting injured because their employer did not follow safety protocols, because why would they if the alternative to working at that site is going back to prison? Fernelius points out that, quote, nationwide, one study found that on any given day, 9,000 people are in prison for failure to maintain employment on parole or probation. And two-thirds of those imprisoned for parole or probation violations related to work or debt are African American or Latino, unquote. The idea of work as a form of punishment or discipline is as old as the modern prison itself. The penitentiaries of the 19th century were seen as places for moral reform, and often people were sentenced to so-called workhouses in order to reform their character and, as the name penitentiary suggests, do a form of penance. In fact, the link between work and moral reform is also evident in other types of government programs today, such as child support requirements and even the proposed alternatives to incarceration, Fernelius points out, such as Community service, which often mandate underpaid or unpaid work outside of prisons. Unquote. And I would add that the same attitude colors the welfare-to-work programs that were a key part of welfare reform, which, not coincidentally, was promoted in the 1990s by the Clinton administration at the same time that it was executing the war on crime. Both measures targeted poor Black communities by promoting a rhetoric of so-called personal responsibility, as well as stereotypes of welfare recipients and people suspected of crime as being lazy and degenerate. The link between work and incarceration is a complex one, though. On the one hand, many formerly incarcerated people struggle to find work due to systemic discrimination against people with criminal records. One might argue that the body shops are doing these folks a favor by helping them get jobs that will help them avoid being reincarcerated. But the flip side of employment as a condition of nominal freedom is the lack of choice that might lead to one being tracked into a situation of exploitation or danger. Noah Zatz, a professor of law at UCLA, told in these times... Quote, most people think about the relationship between the criminal legal system and labor in terms of exclusion or barriers to employment, such as discrimination against people with a criminal record. But there's also a kind of flip side phenomenon, which is not one in which people are being locked out of work, but when people are being forced into work and in particular forced into work on vulnerable or subordinating terms, unquote. The political pushback against body shops in New York City has been led by local building trades unions, who not only have ethical objections to the exploitation of their fellow construction laborers, but also an interest in preventing abuses by non union employers, which undermine working conditions for the entire sector. Mason Tenders District Council and Construction and Building Laborers Local 79 Unions helped craft local legislation that, quote, would require greater transparency from labor providers within the construction industry, mandate that employers inform workers of their rights, including their minimum wage and potential overtime pay, and require that employers provide information to the city about the number of workers they employ and how much those workers are paid, unquote. The new legislation, which goes into effect next month, will help provide transparency around body shops, But perhaps the bigger question for the labor movement is, what is labor's relationship to the millions of people who move through the criminal legal system every day, for the working class people who are released from prison and struggle to reintegrate into their communities and the workforce? While labor is helping to address the commercial exploitation of the formerly incarcerated in the short term, the movement also has a stake in building an economic system in which every worker has an opportunity for fair, decent work, regardless of where they came from on their own terms." And that is it for this episode of Belabored. Thanks to Natasha and Colin for making us sound good. And thank you to all of our supporters on Patreon. If you enjoy the independent journalism we bring you every two weeks and want to see us cover more of the labor movement, please consider supporting us on Patreon at patreon.com slash belabored. And if you want to do something extra special for us, you can leave us a positive review on the podcast platform of your choice. And don't forget you can download all of our episodes for free, archived on the Descent Magazine website at descentmagazine.org. We also want to hear your stories as well. So, if you are a formerly incarcerated person trying to find a decent job, we want to hear from you. We also want to hear from you if you are a childcare worker struggling with low pay as more and more is demanded of you in the pandemic era. And we want to hear from you if you are a worker struggling with inflation and struggling to cover your basic needs amid the rising cost of living. If you have any stories, questions, or comments, you can get in touch with us directly at belabored at Or you can contact us on Twitter using the hashtag belabored. And in a few weeks, we are headed to the Labor Notes Conference in Chicago. If you're going to be there, Sarah and I will as well, and we'll be recording. So come up and say hi. And that's all for this episode. Over and out.
4: This life
3: is hard, so hard I must go Care not. We
0: can't You've been listening to Descent Magazine's Belaboured Podcast For the entire archive of past episodes Visit descentmagazine.org. Join us online using hashtag Belaboured